It's an understatement to say that communication plays a significant role in the life of the Christian. It is with communication that the gospel goes forth. It is by communication, by speaking clearly and in the power of the Holy Spirit that one receives the good news of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We find that the advancement of that kingdom itself happens through communication. So we've broken this text down to four sections. Keep that in mind. We got through two of them last Lord's Day, and that covered verse 5. So if you want to look at your text, Paul says this, conduct yourself with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. So a very simple direct command we find by Paul as he's sort of making his closing arguments to the church at Colossae. And breaking this down, we find the first characteristic really of communication very simply is that it's a testimony. When we communicate something as new persons in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are giving a testimony. And what is that testimony? What's the substance of it? It is wisdom. Paul says to conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders. Of course, we want to be wise and make the most of every opportunity. This is an all-encompassing statement. We find that wisdom is something that we desire to color, really, to define every area of life. There's certainly no directive outside of metaphor where we are to conduct ourselves as fools. Indeed, we are fools for Christ's sake. But we are always told to conduct our lives with wisdom. It's an all-encompassing statement. Every thought, we could say every plan, every word, every work that we do, has the aim of pursuing what is good, what is best in life from God's perspective, from God's point of view. And if Christ is the one, as Colossians says, is the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, to live wisely is to always be pointing to others, including outsiders, where the treasure is. See, we live our lives in such a way where at least there is a question as to the value of how we are living their lives. We should never be, as Christians, living our lives in such a way where unbelievers can point and say, what a worthless way of life that is. How fruitless, how foolish, how pointless. How can anything good come of this? We live in such a way where we say beyond a shadow of a doubt, there is treasure. We know where the treasure is. It's in Christ. We are to communicate by living wisely the goodness and the blessing and the grace that is made so clearly manifest by living life in Christ. And of course, it would follow from this that we are to use words. There's the lifestyle, but then there is also the lips. And as we pound from this pulpit often, never let your gospel testimony be limited, be truncated to your lifestyle. Lifestyle witnessing is overrated. It's a good thing, but it is incomplete. The gospel is words. The gospel is a message clearly communicated and proclaimed for the glory of God and the advancement of the kingdom of His Son. So, while lifestyle is definitely an external testimony, and as we said too, an investment that we make, not just toward one another, but also towards outsiders, it also must be explained. It must be explained. It must be articulated. And that's where words come in. Requires talking. I think we find our example in God Himself. God uses words. God speaks forth. 
It's one of the ways we are fashioned by our Creator and reflect His image faithfully is by speaking His truth. We use words. Notice that in the opening passage of Holy Scripture, it says, and God said, let there be light. It does not say, then God felt, let there be light. We read in further detail in John 1.1, in the beginning was the what? In the beginning, yes, was the Word. We don't read, in the beginning was the vibe. In the beginning was the Word, speaking of Jesus, God's ultimate revelation and disclosure of Himself. It's an expression. It's, it's a Word. The living Word of God. All creation is held by the emotion of His power. Do we read that? No. We read very clearly. All creation is held together by the Word of His power. God commands and the heavens and earth obey. God speaks and it was so. God uses words to display His power and goodness. And as His faithful image bearers who live, who live by Him and for Him, so we do the same. We recognize that there is power in the Word of God. So in the very pattern of God Himself, as Christians, we use words. But what matters is not only the words we use, but how we use them and where. And so we come to this part of our passage. Part 3 and 4, we have this communication of the new man expressed in a testimony and an investment where we make the most of every opportunity. And then, of course, if you want to look at your Bibles again, verse 6, he says this, love this passage, let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. So this is a very, should be a very familiar and even beloved characteristic of the way we communicate with one another. And that is grace. Our communication should be gracious. It's a testimony of the wisdom of God. It's an investment in outsiders. Makes the most of every opportunity, but it is also full of grace. Communication certainly isn't empty, but certainly we also do not want it to be harsh and grating and ungodly. Even the words we speak serve a purpose. So many things concern us about the way we speak to each other. It's just an unavoidable component of our day. We've talked about this. Unless, of course, you hide yourself in a cave somewhere and you don't get out, you don't interact with people. But of course, we understand very clearly from the pages of Scripture that the Christian life is a social life. So we get out and we interact with one another. We build up one another in the most holy faith and we use our words consistent with our lifestyle as new men in Christ to be a witness to the unbeliever, to speak words of truth, to lead the unbeliever to faith and repentance in the gospel. And we use words. It is amazing the way that we can use words. Words, I would say, after this character, the most important characteristic of love, denotes the greatest and profoundest change in the heart of man when he comes to Christ. It is very common to hear someone give their testimony. And one of the most profound changes of note is the way they talk. The way they talk, the substance of what they say, even the very motivation, even why they say what they said is transformed. We say different things. We say it in a different way. And we say it for a different purpose. And underlying all of this, what explains this change, we ask? It, is, it comes down to this very word, grace. We speak 
graciously to one another. We speak in a gracious manner. And we speak from the very motivation of grace. When we talk to one another, even the unbeliever, we desire to be a vehicle of grace. To communicate grace to everyone as the Lord gives us opportunity. And so what an, so what an opportunity we have to speak forth the riches of Christ. To speak forth grace. The words we say, what we say, how we say, why we say, all of that, all of our speech speaks to the true condition of our heart. And we read a very important text this morning, and I want to read it again because it sums it up well. From James 3, let not many of you become teachers, brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. And where does James immediately go? He goes to our speech. He goes to our communication, our conversation in particular. He says, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Isn't that amazing? If you can control what you say, you will find many other areas of life where you have control as well. If you lack self-control in what you say, you will also find many other areas in your life where you lack self-control. When it comes to speech, there, there tends to be sort of a domino effect. What you say is one of the most present and obvious indicators of what is going on in the heart. Able to bridle the whole body. And then he says, now if we put the bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct the entire body as well. And then he gives us another great word picture. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. How are you inclined? Where is your heart inclined? Your speech will reflect the inclination of your heart. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. You want to see that boasting? Just turn on the news anytime during it. You will see men and women and people of all ages boast of great things. Why? Because the heart is inclined, especially apart from Christ, apart from grace, is inclined to boast of great things. It is amazing also that we see the effect that speech has on our relationships. Many, if not all of us, have been through a time in life where we had a, a solid friendship, and maybe one idle word, one idle sentence, and the friendship fell through. The relationship was severed because of some unkind, thoughtless word. And the other person did not receive it well. And so the friendship was destroyed. And it's very tragic the way that speech, ungodly speech, can play into our lives and relationships. And so, of course, we see that even our communication is meant to be redeemed by the gospel. We talk again and again how the gospel transforms everything. And we do mean just that. That is not hyperbole. The gospel transforms everything. And one of the most profound transformations is found in what we say, how we say it, and why. Just our verbal communication. And so we can concentrate on this this morning. Continuing in James, this great warning. See how great a forest is set aflame, aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire. The very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life, and is set on fire by hell. Don't mince words, James. Tell us how you really feel. We see where this comes. For every species of bird and 
or beasts and birds and reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. Now, when we go on in verse 9, look at what it says. It says, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men. Many of us have been caught in that web of hypocrisy. We praise the Lord out loud, and yet we, we curse men. We curse fellow image bearers. Start cursing that, then we start cursing everything else. Every time something goes wrong, we curse. Every time we stub our toe, we curse. It's amazing how the dominoes fall and fall and fall when it comes to the tongue. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. And note the inconsistency. We want to be consistent in all of our speech, do we not? In the way we talk. We, want, we don't want hypocrisy, we want consistency. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? No. That'd be quite a marvel of nature if it did. Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. And so what's the remedy to that? And Paul calls us to that very thing. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt. Let everything we say, let our every communication within and without be with grace. It's the beauty of consistency. We treat fellow believers with grace in a setting where familiarity can often breed contempt, but no, it should breed more grace. And even to outsiders, it is also with grace, always with the redemptive view in mind. So we understand, even from Paul and James, that words are powerful no matter what those words may be. Certain words are said with a level of force and conviction because they are meant to have an impact on the one receiving, even for their benefit. And those words can be used to build up or to destroy. And of course, those words we speak give us a clear view of the condition of a person's heart. But what's the difference? What is the sure indicator? It is the presence or absence of grace. I was listening to a sermon on this, and I'm not going to do that that for us this morning, but the preacher, as he was going through this, gave a, an index of all the, the things characteristic with unregenerate speech. And it's really quite alarming the way we use words to tear down, the way we use words in, a, in an unredemptive sort of way. I think Paul sums this up well elsewhere in the book of Romans when he's discussing how all the world is under the condemnation, the just condemnation of God. And when he says, this is Romans 3, and he starts in verse 10, and he says, there is none righteous, not even one. He's establishing how good people are not, not only how righteous God is. But what's the first characteristic he brings up in stark detail? He says in verse 13, their throat is an open grave. Not only does the tongue set things on fire, or the mouth just set things on fire, but it, but it, it kills. It's, if it's sourced in death, this is how Paul describes it. And he says, with their tongues they keep deceiving, the poison of asps or vipers is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. And I would certainly hope as the Spirit works within our own midst, these things would be far from us that we would be more and more inclined to speak words of grace and goodness, not death and misery. For sure we want that for ourselves and for our brothers in Christ that we care for. But Scripture is replete with examples of all that the tongue is used to do and manifest. Evil, lust, deceit, 
curses, oppression, lies, perversion, destruction. I'm just giving you a sampling. Vanity, flattery, foolishness. All characteristic of unregenerate speech. I think we underestimate how much the flesh just desires to maintain a stronghold on the way we talk. And why wouldn't it? Words are powerful. Words are meaningful. Words are a mighty instrument in the hands of the living God where we can bless Him and speak forth words of life, words of truth, and words of grace. list goes on. Madness. Listen to this. Talking too much, the fool multiplies words. Or idle talk, just things that are said carelessly. And I think most devastatingly, false doctrine, evil plans, pride, hatred, swearing, filthy communication, and gossip. It's a small sampling. That is what the unregenerate heart pours forth through the tongue. Jesus sums this up very well. Listen to what he says. Matthew 15. Jesus called the crowd to him and he said to them, hear and understand. So don't miss this. It is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth. This defiles the man. And then going on, chapter 15, verse 18. But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and those defile the man. It's interesting how much we quibble over the things that go into us that defile us. And yet Jesus says, it's what comes out of the man that is defiling him, that is afflicting him in this way. Listen to what he says. Verse 19, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. And then he says, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. So he is addressing a group of people who are just quibbling about the pettiest of things. We notice, Jesus, that you and your disciples are not washing your hands like you should be. It's like, oh, okay, let me clear this up. That does not defile the man. It is what is in your heart that comes out that defiles you. That is clear. And I would say, by God's grace, it is by the very word of grace that we are able to transform or to see transformed our speech, the way we talk, right? What we say, how we say it, and why we say it. We would say that the mouth, the tongue of the saved is starkly different. We have, remember, we are new men in Christ Jesus. That means we have a new heart, a new mind, and so we have new speech. We speak differently. And so now with a heart of humility, a heart that has been purified by the power of the gospel, we speak much differently. We speak to confess sin, to confess Christ, to confess what is good, to confess the very word and law of God. All of these are ways that grace transforms the way we speak. Listen to what Psalm 32 says. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Selah. There you go. Selah. Think about that one before we move on in this text. But what's different here? The confession of sin is characteristic of a humble heart. One, a situation in which grace and truth has shined the light on his sin and his need for a Savior. And so he confesses his sin. The unregenerate man does not confess his sin. And if he does, it's only for convenience. It's only out of selfish motives. But typically he is proud and he is defensive. He has no interest in confessing sin. He only has interest in clearing his name. 
In the same manner, we confess Christ. That's something, I think, profound that takes place. You'll notice that a person who is in Christ wants to talk about Christ, wants to talk about the things of God. That's where his mind is centered. That's where his heart is centered. So that's where his speech is centered. Rather than talking about his heroic accomplishments, his accolades, his feats of strength and wisdom, he he wants to talk about Christ. You'll notice that especially in transformed speech. The person speaking will be more interested in talking about the Lord than themselves. We also speak truth. We speak the truth of God regularly and with power and with clarity. That is our preoccupation. It's what we want to talk about because it comes from a transformed heart. What do we read in the Word of God? These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. That's Deuteronomy 6, the great Shema. Hear, O Israel. Hear, O church today. The Word of God shall be in our hearts. We use words to praise God and worship Him, to bless one another rather than cursing. We also read that words can turn away wrath. We read that in Proverbs 15.1. A soft answer turns away wrath, but harsh words, they do what? What do harsh words do? They stir up anger. They turn turn others away from wanting to hear us. It's interesting, this harsh words stir up anger. The word for harsh there is the same word used in Genesis chapter 3 to describe the pains of childbirth. A harsh word stirs up anger. That is where we come to look more closely even at our text We are regenerate. We are alive in Christ. So our words are also regenerate. They are life-giving. They are of grace. So important to keep in mind. When we, before we even speak, that is why James, going back to James, said everyone should be slow to speak, slow to anger. You'd be amazed how quick words can even stir up anger in your own heart. Can get you all worked up. But then he says, quick to listen. Just close your mouth for a minute. And listen, hear, and think about what you are going to say before you say it. And ask yourself, are the words I am about to speak words of grace with gracious motives? Or am I simply interested in airing my own opinion and hoping that the other person shares my opinion? We have to admit it. We love it when people see things our way. And we will go to great lengths to ensure that people are on the same page as we like to say when we would naturally desire each other to be on God's page together. So this is the language of the Christian. We speak the language of truth, but within that we speak the dialect of grace. If you want to say the accent, what punctuates this language of truth is grace. Wherever we are in any setting, we speak grace. Now, here's our great um, qualification of this morning's sermon. We never want to confuse grace with nice. We've already done it to love. Being, remember, being loving, saying things with love, speaking the truth in love. What, do we, what, what, what does it come to mean by that culturally? Just be nice, be accepting, be tolerant. We do the same thing to kind. You realize they're hijacking the word kind now. Be kind. What kind of lame brain stuff is that? Do not let the unbeliever, do not let unbelieving apostate culture hijack these precious terms. Because that's what's really being said. Be kind. What does that mean? Just be nice. It's doing the same thing. Grace is going to be hijacked as well. 
What does it mean to be gracious? It just means to be nice. It means to be benign. It means to be pleasant. So when we say be gracious, we, we're not saying be nice. We're not saying be passive. Sometimes, right, the most gracious thing that we can do is speak with conviction, is speak with unction and with seriousness because we know that the spiritual well-being of another rides on receiving that truth and living by it. So there is something to truth that does make us serious. But within the operation of grace in our speech, and I think that this is really what characterizes it, is that there is a redemptive effort, a redemptive work and desire in our very speech, in our very talking itself. There is an intention, a sanctifying desire and intention that is expressed toward the other person. So in its very substance, that is what it means to speak with grace. There's always an interest for the, the other person's good in mind. So what is grace? We understand grace very simply as God's undeserved, unmerited love and kindness toward those who, do not, who have done nothing to earn or deserve it, who have done nothing to merit it. And yet God gives it to us in great abundance. And that, and that grace transforms us. So let your speech be saturated with that. That when we talk to one another, we understand, and I would say we desire, that God, that, that God would be doing a redemptive work, a sanctifying work in the very things we say, so that our very words would be used as an agent of transformation. So whatever grace God has given us, let that be evident in our speech. God is changing us from the inside out. We understand that. That's the sanctifying power of the gospel, and it transforms our talk as well. And I think that's one thing that needs to be made clear here as well. When he says, let your speech always be with grace, that is not Paul commanding us just to preach the gospel. It's let grace cover all, color all of your speech. That in all of our conversation, grace is at the forefront. Grace is a motivating factor in what we say to one another. Listen to Ecclesiastes 10.12. Words from the mouth of a wise man are gracious. This is great. We just talked about wisdom. If you are wise, you will speak gracious words. But then he says this, while the lips of a fool consume him. The lips of a fool consume him. I think one way of understanding that is that what a fool says is going to just destroy him. As opposed to grace, which is life-giving it enumerates and communicates God's goodness to others. That's why Paul says this. Listen to Ephesians 4.29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. See, we want to say what is good. We want to say what is edifying. And we want to be wise to know what we are to say in that moment. People are different. People go through different things. We're not going to say the same thing to every person. Now, we may reinforce certain underlying truths, but everyone is enduring a different situation. No situation is vanilla. Right? So we want to show wisdom and compassion as we speak forward the words of grace when that person is in need of it. And you never know what a blessing you can be to someone when you are slow to speak and when you decide to speak. It is gracious life-giving speech, sanctifying speech. And so Paul follows along with this, 1 Thessalonians 5, 11. 
Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. So excel, excel still more. This is not, this gracious speech is not something we turn on and off. It is an abiding presence within our speech. And even in a broader application, based on what Paul has just said here previously, for your words to be full of grace is to be full of compassion, kindness, patience, love, forgiveness. All of those things that have transformed you in Christ. All of those things are built into gracious speech. Speech full of grace desires to put those things on clear display. Not to use speech to destroy one another, to stir up anger, to backbite, to even be deliberately offensive or provoking them to anger. All those things that we just went over, those are to be put away. Put away all malice in your speech. All clamor and evil speaking. And be kind to one another. Speak graciously to one another. You realize the example that we have in Scripture. Think, think of the way that the Lord speaks to His people. Think of the way, furthermore, that the Lord speaks to a, to a stiff-necked and obstinate people. The, Lord's, the way the Lord speaks is just amazing grace to us. And that's the example we follow from Jesus Himself. What does He say? Come to Me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest? I mean, where else do we find a, a grace like that? We don't know grace apart from the example set by our Lord. I am gentle. I am humble in heart. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. What, what amazing comfort and grace is found in those words where the Lord tells us with gentleness and care, come to me. There is grace here. It's even echoed in Isaiah. Look to me, all the ends of the earth, and be what? Saved. But he says, look to me. Look to me and find grace. Look to me and find life and peace and truth. There is no shortage of grace in the Lord. I love this passage from, uh, I believe it's Isaiah 55. If you want to turn there briefly, where he says, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy milk or come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. This is the great irony of the gospel. This is the great irony of grace is that we get the best of what God has to offer without cost. The reason is because Jesus Christ paid the price himself. And we get to enjoy all the benefits of it. It's free. It'll cost you your life. You belong heart and soul to the Lord now. But it is free. And it is given in abundance. And that is something where the, the modern man or woman may be suspicious of right off the bat. What do you mean free? There's always got to be a catch to free. If it's free, surely the quality of it must be compromised. I think that if it's free, something must be wrong with it. And yet with Within the grace of God, we receive the best of what He has to offer, namely Himself, namely life in His Son, joy in the Spirit, and unity with His people. And it's all bought and paid for and can be delivered in abundance because of what Jesus has done. And so tying all that together, let what you say reflect this grace and this goodness. May the words you speak forward reflect the abundance of God. That is the goodness given by Him 
without cost and turn away from that which does not satisfy. Realize when we proclaim grace, we are pointing people to what will satisfy their souls. And so Paul goes on. He said, let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt. So he uses salt as a word picture to describe grace. And we've already been describing grace quite a bit. But let's, let's ruminate on this. If we are to understand anything today, let us understand the grace of God. So Paul uses salt to explain what grace is like. Keep that in mind. What is grace like? Well, let me tell you. It's like salt. <laughs> it's like salt. Of course, salt has numerous functions. And I'm not really sure, looking at this text, the specific function that Paul may have in mind. Perhaps he has many, but just a cursory study of this re- reveals many uses for, for salt. And I think all of them uh, play a useful and wise application in our understanding of this text today. Firstly is this. Salt is a preservative. See, we have these wonderful things called refrigerators today. They keep our uh, veggies fresh. They keep our meat from spoiling. They keep our milk from going sour. They keep our beer cold. There, I said it. It preserves. Salt preserves. So what you would do if you had a, a, slab, of, a slab of ribs, you hang it out, but you'd, you'd rub a generous amount of salt on it, and that would keep it from spoiling. It would basically keep the bacteria from forming on it and th- so that you would forfeit uh, the ability to enjoy your food. Keeps it from rot. In similar manner, conversation seasoned with salt, full of grace, has has a, well, you would say resist corruption. When you speak with one another in grace, just in daily, casual, common conversation, you are preserving the relationship. You are keeping the relationship from deteriorating. We just talked about unregenerate speech and how even an idle word can destroy a years-long friendship. But when our speech is seasoned with salt, it keeps corruption at bay, maintains, keeps the relationship fresh. Of course, we would desire that. Here's the second thing. Salt, oh, and you're going to love this one. Salt stings. Most, Most of you are familiar with the term, oh, salt in the wound. Doesn't always feel good. But this kind of goes along with the uh, preservation factor. Salt does sting. But what it's doing is it is disinfecting, prevents the further spread of infection. Sort of think about like an antibiotic or something, an ancient version of that. So how does that play a role in our conversation, in our communication? Well, it does this. There are times where we have to wound one another. We know that. And this is probably the most difficult part of conversation, even in a Christian relationship. We have a hard time receiving it. That is a huge part of spiritual growth, is simply receiving with a humble and open heart the exhortations and even sometimes strong stinging rebukes that the other person has to give or deliver, has the pleasure of delivering to us. That's why we say, be a teachable person. The godly man is a teachable man. The humble man is a teachable man. The spirit-filled man is a teachable man. There is a heart willing and even anticipates to to receive correction even though it's difficult. And so what we see here is when these words of grace and truth are applied, it has the power to cleanse and heal if it is received. Proverbs 27.6 says, 
Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Oh yeah, it's nice to have kisses every once in a while. It's nice to receive flattery and to have good things said about us. But what if those things are false? What if those things are said so that you can be taken advantage of? So someone can exercise power over you, but does not belong to them. Well, faithful are the wounds of a friend. That's what we desire. And that is hard to take. And yet, what, is, what, is the writer, what does the writer here say? Yes, they are wounds, but they come from a friend. But how does he describe them? They are faithful. May we desire that in our lives. I mean, blessed is the man who has a friend who is willing to wound him, to say a difficult thing for their benefit, for their spiritual growth, and to keep that corruption at bay. Yes, those words may sting. But this is where we say, even if you don't care for their tone, right? We don't like, I don't care for your tone. We say that all the time. And yet we use that as an excuse to be dismissive of what is, of the truth that is actually being said. That's why we teach. Concentrate on the actual content of the truth being delivered so that even if you don't like how it's said, because let's face it, if we receive a truth that we don't like or that it's hard to hear, we'll come up with all kinds of excuses to reject it. And we need to repent from that proud mindset. Receive it because it's faithful. Receive it because the Lord will use that truth to go to work on your heart and to sanctify the inner man and to even strengthen that relationship. We want faithful friends. And faithful friends are willing to say hard things to one another. Because once we start rejecting truth, friends, we're, we're, we're doomed. Woe to the person who just can't receive it. But how blessed is the person who sees those wounds as faithful, that a person was willing to come up to you and even risk that relationship, risk the so-called peace that was in that relationship so that God's grace could be made manifest in your life. That a person decided, this may hurt, but I love them enough to say what is good for them, to say what is best for them. That is the mindset we should have toward one another. That dynamic is especially powerful in marriage. Yes, husbands, wives, you are going to wound one another regularly. But wound by grace. Wound by truth. Yes, wound one another knowing that those wounds are faithful. And obviously, this is not meant as an opportunity to take pot shots at one another, to degrade one another, to embarrass one another. It's, me it's meant for the purpose of sanctification and spiritual growth and a greater love for God and His people. It's a huge challenge. Huge challenge for Christians. And yet, this is one of the ways where I think we see growth made the most manifest, is that we're willing to speak the truth to one another. Grace is a cutter, but it's also a binder. It's a wounder, and it's a healer. Grace kills, but it also resurrects. Grace never goes halfway, nor should we treat it as such. Think of Hebrews 12.11, great verse speaking to this. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Do we want do we not want that peaceful fruit yielded in one another? Absolutely. We want to grow in righteousness. We want to continue to train ourselves in righteousness. Righteous thoughts, righteous desires, righteous speech. All of those things are to be characterized by righteousness. But how are we to do those things if we isolate 
ourselves from other Christians being able to speak to our hearts, to speak into our lives, to give exhortation and correction. We would die otherwise. We would absolutely die otherwise. Reminded of a time I was working, (laughs) I love hospital illustrations. One of the most awful things I ever saw in the hospital, working in LA for a few years, I was in the ER and I was getting ready to draw draw this guy's blood. And and there was this uh, little corner of the ER over there and the curtain was drawn. And suddenly this man just starts screaming, screaming in, in, in pain like I've never heard before. Um, then there would be some silence, and then he would scream again. And after a few seconds, the whole ER started to smell like death. And next up was to go and draw this gentleman's blood. So we take the curtain, and the smell just hits you like a bread truck. And so what was actually happening to this man is that he, uh, he had been shooting up so much heroin, he, had, he, he developed an infection in his bicep. And the doctor was in there squeezing the pus out of his arm. But if she hadn't done it, the infection would have spread and the man would have died. And so, yes, there was pain involved. There was anguish involved. Pain like you've never heard before. And yet, that's sometimes how grace works, at, works in our own lives. It hurts. And yet, it does what it does so we live and not die. And the, this man was able, able to live. But it was very painful. And that's sometimes how grace works. And we have to accept that. We have to receive it and understand the goodness and provision that is involved even in the most painful operations of grace. And yet when we recover, when we find our spiritual footing, we are joyful. We are joyful even for even over the pain that was brought because the, the pain included a life-giving application of grace. So keep that in mind. I hope you, yeah, that visual rests in your minds this, this afternoon. Thirdly, salt is a flavor enhancer. Salt is seasoning. It brings out flavor. We don't want bland food, nor do we want our conversation to be bland. Our conversation should be flavorful. We've all walked away from social encounters and conversations that we say, that left a bad taste in my mouth. We didn't like that. Even sometimes we use the word salty to describe a way a person spoke. Well, that was really salty speech. I don't know if I want to get involved in that again. My old pastor used to say, you know, as a... If you, if, you call your, if you call your wife honey, don't treat her like vinegar. Leaves a bad taste in our mouths. Leaves us feeling perplexed and discouraged. We say that good conversation, good conversation, as salt is, is uh, used as a metaphor here, should be like a multi-course meal. Some words can be appetizers. Gives us an appetite for more food. Some words are the main course, the primary subject of conversation. They are, they are savory. Some words are like dessert. They are sweet. They are sweet. And they are meant to build the other person up. Some is like an ice cold, refreshing beverage that satisfies and refreshes the soul. That's how salt works. Salt brings flavor. And may your speech be full of flavor and bring a comfort to the other person. It's kind of flowing off of this as the fourth one. It's sort of the Greek understanding, and I think it helps. Is that salt was used as a term to describe charming wit and wisdom of someone who was well-spoken. Not just merely a rhetorician, someone who has a fancy way with words, but in the Christian context, there should be a wit and wisdom and attractiveness to the way we speak to one another. Right? We're, not, we're not grating and hostile. No, we're, we're gentle and careful. Those are the things that express grace. Listen to Proverbs 11.30. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who is wise wins souls. See, if you're 
there, there, once again, there is wisdom coupled with grace. Hard to show grace if you, have, if you know nothing about it. Another correction here too. Exhortation for us from Psalm 141.3. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. There's that rejoinder. Once again, be slow to speak. Don't shoot your mouth off. It's hard to be gracious if you talk before you think. But we desire our speech to be saturated with grace. And that's where Paul says this. Brings us to number four. He says, though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. So we've talked about communication being a testimony, being an investment as we take opportunity. And then, of course, our communication is gracious. There's always a redemptive view when we talk. And then I think this last one I've just categorized as security. Our communication is security. And and, and I'll explain what I mean by that. But listen to what Paul says once again. Why does... Why, why do we want our speech to be always with grace, right? Not intermittently, always with grace, though seasoned with salt, so that, so there's the purpose, you will know how you should respond to each person. Many of us will find ourselves in various situations where we think, I have no idea how to respond to this person. You know, I'm speechless. Most of the time, that's a good thing. I don't even know what to say to that. I have no idea. But if our speech is saturated with grace, if it, is, if it is always bound by a Christ-like concern and interest for others, it will be very hard to be in the dark regarding what to say, regarding how to answer anyone, believer or unbeliever. Sometimes we may be talking to a believer and what they say will totally perplex us, especially if they're going through a very difficult time in life don't really know what to say. Sometimes it's best to say nothing at all for the time and to just listen. But when the opportunity arises, we speak forth grace, things that are in their best interest, things that are useful for building them up and encouraging them and renewing their strength. See, if you are harsh, vindictive, self-interested, thinking about your feelings, your thoughts, your perspective, if you're completely self-absorbed in your speech, If you have that mindset, that is a mindset that opposes grace actively. And what will happen is that your judgment will be very clouded regarding what you are to say. There is something about grace in speech that clarifies. There is something about a gracious heart and a gracious mindset and disposition that takes the mystery out of how to respond. So that if you are gracious, you'll know how to respond. That's what Paul is saying. How do we respond to others? With grace. How do, res- how do I respond to the biting words of unbelievers? With grace. How do I respond to the biting words of believers? With grace. Whether in triumph or in brokenness, if we have an attitude of grace, you will always know how to respond. I think that's Paul's point. Even though grace may sometimes sound sharp and it cuts It is always seeking to reveal the good. It always seeks to reveal what is right and what is true and what is beneficial for the other person. It always seeks to lead others to the cross. It always seeks to lead others to Christ Himself. So doesn't that take the mystery out of it? How do I respond? Grace. Grace provides that baseline in terms of how to speak to others. So we know how to respond. We don't have to be in the dark. If you want to 
be self-absorbed, if you want to be vindictive or vengeful, you will not have a clue about how to talk to others. And you're just going to blow them out. You're just going to provoke them to anger. And then you're going to bring damage to the relationship and squander an opportunity that may have brought the gospel of Jesus Christ to bear to them. However, if we have the mindset of grace, trust me on this, you will never be clueless. You will always have a platform of what to say, even though, as we've said, every situation is different. But if the starting point is grace, you will have no problem speaking the truth. So that is the communication, friends, of the new man. And may God help us be faithful in all these things, in a testimony, in our investment, in showing grace to others, and also security. Right? We don't have to flounder. That's where the security is. We are secure in Christ in regards of how we are to respond to all people. We're not lost. We're not listless. We're not clueless. We're not foolish. We know what to say. And it begins with grace. So may that grace in Christ saturate all of life, not just our actions, but especially our speech. So what an opportunity we have as we uh, look forward to fellowship to speak grace to one another and to build each other up. So let's pray. Father, thank you again uh, for your kindness. We thank you for your grace. And Lord, if we can look to you and have a clear vision of what grace is like, oh Lord, the clarity that we have and how to speak to others. And, and, and yes, there's so much more that, that could have been said about how we talk to each other, how we relate to one another when it comes to speech, even the various difficulties and misunderstandings that often undergird our conversation. Lord, in all of that, may, may grace abound. And Lord, even when we, are, we find ourselves in situations where we really uh, don't know the motive of the other person, I pray that our hearts would be humble to receive the truth that they say. May we respond with grace. May that always be at the forefront. Rather than being proud and defensive, may we practice grace by giving one another the benefit of the doubt. May we overlook an offensive, perhaps harsh language, or even a questionable motive, and simply look to the truth that is revealed. And with that, Lord, we do pray that we would have righteous and gracious motives when we talk to one another, that we wouldn't do anything out of self-interest or because another brother's sin distresses us or brings us trouble, but out of a genuine Christ-like care for their soul and their well-being. May we speak words of grace and comfort to them as we see the very example in our Savior himself, words that relieve the burden, words that bring clarity, words that refresh, words that teach, words that point to the King himself. May we be faithful in that. May we also, Lord, find security in grace. There is so much security, God, as we are anchored in the very hope of all that grace brings to bear, that we don't have to wander as lost sheep in regards to what to say or how to speak to one another. Grace is our starting point, and so we can speak words that are redemptive and life-giving and truthful, always seeking the good of one another. I pray that, God, for our church, that that would be the very language and culture of our church, one of grace. We're always looking, always seeking the highest good of one another, that your grace would be abundant and made manifest in our midst even this morning, that we can be vessels of grace and not vessels of vengeance. Lord, may we, in that grace, uh, be forgiving, be compassionate and humble and kind toward one another, uh, knowing that you will continue to do your work uh, in each of our hearts. 
And by grace, may we, may we be instrumental in that. We pray all this, Lord, and commit the rest of our time. In Jesus' precious name, amen.